Hi, and welcome to the Granta Podcast. I'm Yuka Igarashi, the editorial assistant at the magazine, and I'm so pleased to be joined by Rachel Seifert. Rachel was named one of our best young British novelists in 2003. She is the author of three award-winning books, The Dark Room, Field Study, and Afterwards. She has a new piece in the latest Granta, which she'll read from and discuss with me now. Graham was 18 and rubbish at talking to females. He looked like a grown man, only he wasn't yet. He was just all shoulders and neck, wide forehead and no talk. Everyone in the flute band was aware of this, so when they were out in the Ulster Wilds, it was him they dispatched to get the lunch, because it was a girl he'd have to speak to on the burger van, a fine one. He'd been up since dawn, drumming and drinking all morning. It was his first time away from home, Graham's first orange walk outside of Glasgow, but nothing like the other walks he'd been on. Same skirling flutes, dark suits, bright sashes, but no tarmac and traffic, no high flats and crowds of torn-faced shoppers. Tyrone was all wet fields and hedgerows as far as his eye could see, and the echo of the lambegs thudding back at them from the low hills. There were masses of folk out too, more every village they passed through, and the field they stopped in at the halfway mark was heaving. Grannies in deck chairs with tea and flasks, wee mobs of kids in rangers' t-shirts, candy floss and sausage suppers, smell of damp grass and frying onions. The lodges were on the far side, all the doer faces, making their speeches, reading out their Bible verses. The band stuck with the crowd, though, and the colour. More chance of a drink there. Graham hadn't paid for a pint since he got here. There were always more folk buying, especially if he told them his granddad was from Ireland, his mum's dad, and that he was in the orange. Graham's tongue all loose with lager, he had been telling folk ever since the ferry, but his tongue was pulled tight again by the sight of Lindsay. Dark red hair, wee skirt and trainers, bare arms, all those freckles. She drew all eyes in the queue, including Graham's. Lindsay was taking the money, getting the cans of juice out of the fridge and adding up what was owed in her head. Half the band had set their sights on her for after, even if none of them rated their chances, and Graham could see why when she turned her grey eyes on him. What'll it be then? She knew he'd been staring, so Graham had to look past her to get the words out. He was ordering for most of the band, or that's what it felt like, and then a couple of the flutes kept changing their minds, calling across from the grass where they'd parked themselves with the drums, chopping and changing between burgers and bacon rolls. They were doing it to wind him up. Graham knew that fine well, so he did his best not to let it show. Except the order got too hard to follow, and then Lindsay gave up on the sums and got the calculator out of the cash box. The queue behind Graham was grumbling by that stage, but Lindsay just told them all to watch their manners. He looked up at her then, and saw how her eyes were sharp and smiling, her back straight, like she could take on all comers. She got Graham to go through the order again, roll by roll, burger by burger, and she wasn't teasing him either. She knew he was shy, but that was all right. Graham watched her fingers on the calculator buttons, her narrow lips repeating what he told her, the pink tip of her tongue and all her freckles. His eyes found them on her face and hands first, and then down her neck as well, and up her arms. They were all wearing the same T-shirt on the van, oversized, with what looked like a lodge number, and today's date printed across the top of the chest. They had on aprons too, so the rest of the shirt was covered, but Lindsay was wearing her T-shirt back to front, and knotted at the side, so when she turned round to get Graham's change, he could see the red hand printed on the cloth, and how long her hair was too a long, loose plait. It stopped at Lindsay's hips, where Graham found more freckles to stare at, on a pale inch of lovely skin, just above the waistband of her skirt. 
After all that, she didn't have enough coins left in the float. I'll bring the change over later. Lindsay told Graham she'd come and find him before the lodgers set off up the road again. And she looked at him, right at him too, making her promise. I won't forget you, honest. Graham watched her while he was eating, from the safer distance of the damp grass, sitting with the rest of the band. She was the same with everyone she served, joking, familiar, and he was gutted, thinking he'd just imagined it. He'd been so sure of it up at the van that she fancied him. He tried to work out how old she was. Could be 14, could be 18, no telling. Graham hoped she wasn't older than him. Lindsay did come over when they were making ready to go, and she gave Graham the coins she owed. He had his drum back on already and his gloves, so he pulled those off to take the money. He felt her fingers touch his palm just for a second, and then she stayed next to him while the bands and lodgers assembled. Graham couldn't look at her then, but he was certain again. He waited for her after the walk, in the back room of the only pub. He sat there a good couple of hours, sure that she'd come, certain he'd never have the nerve to go and look for her if she didn't, and then he saw her, coming through the bar and looking for him. He knew she was, because when she saw him she made a beeline through the crush. She had the same shirt on, still knotted, but no apron, so now Graham could see the skin on her belly, and it was all he could do to stop himself putting his hands there when she got up close. One drink later they were out the back and walking, past where the barrels were stacked and on, with the sun going down behind their shoulders. It was quiet out there, after the pub doors fell shut, just the two of them on the empty track and neither of them talking. Only the sound of the wind in the wheat and the weeds growing tall beside the farm gate. They walked the length of the tumble-down wall until it got low enough to climb and behind that was a hidden spot with just enough grass for Lindsay to lie down. Graham shouted out when he pushed himself inside her. He didn't mean to, but it didn't matter. She didn't laugh or anything. But then after... When it was over, when she stood up and pulled down her skirt, Lindsay looked at him, and he saw that it hadn't been that way, not for her. Graham was still on his knees and busied himself with his trousers, tucking in his shirt to cover his shame, gutted again. Too much drunk, he regretted the pints he'd already sunk. Lindsay stood a moment watching, and then she crouched down next to him, reaching for her knickers. They had slipped off her ankles over her trainers, and she picked them up from where they'd landed. Where are you from, then? She was looking at him, face level with his and close, knickers bunched in her fist. Graham told her, Scotland? And she rolled her eyes. But friendly, he thought, like she'd been on the burger van that afternoon. Graham said, from Glasgow, from Drumchapel. He named the scheme, though she'd never have heard of it, and then Lindsay narrowed her eyes a bit. You in a juvenile lodge, Graham, or a man's? She was smiling. She'd found out his name from someone, and now she was guessing how old he was. But she was teasing as well, and that nerve was still too raw for Graham to take courage. So he shook his head. I'm no. Bad enough he was in a band. That's what his mum said. There'd be no end of nagging if he joined a lodge. But Graham wasn't about to go into all that, because Lindsay had her cool eyes on him, like she was weighing him up. She leaned in a bit closer. Me either. My dad's orange enough for the two of us. Lindsay pulled at her T-shirt, tugging the lodge number up onto her shoulder to show him and then shoving it back again out of sight. The knot at her waist had gone slack, so she undid it and then retied it tighter, higher up, under her ribs, and she told him, I've never been to Glasgow. Is it good there? Graham shrugged, trying not to look at her skin, that strip of it on show again above her skirt. Aye. He'd never thought if Glasgow was good or not, he couldn't say. 
Lindsay looked at him a second or two. Better than here. She wasn't asking, but Graham shrugged again by way of reply, not wanting to put this place down because he'd had a fine time. Except that made Lindsay smile. So he had to look away, and then his eyes landed on the pale scrunch of cloth between her fingers. Lindsay laughed. She said, Better is. And then, I've never been anywhere. She stood up and pocketed her knickers. Graham thought she was making to go. And so this was it now. It was all over. But when he looked up, she was waiting for him. You coming? What I love about this section and all your writing is the strong sense of the unsaid. Um, I think you convey emotions by showing what's been left unsaid more than what gets articulated. With Lindsay and Graham, for instance, they build this tender relationship after exchanging a few glances and about ten words. Mm. Is this something you think about when you're writing, that you're writing around these silences? Yes, very much. And sometimes it has to all be put in there, and then it all has to be taken out again. But most of the time I think my characters are... The characters I choose to write about are often quite reticent. And um, and so it's not, it's not so much that I take things out, it's working out what you can say that infers mm, right. more. And, uh, and that's quite a slow process often. Right. Your prose is really controlled and spare, I guess, because you're writing about these also these type of characters who don't, who are in some ways inarticulate. Yeah. Um, and um, I think that a lot of that prose has to be that spirit in order to describe these sort of unspoken dynamics. And I was wondering how much do you know how to put in and how do you know how to trust the readers or listeners to pick up on these sort of subtle cues? Mm, it's a very difficult one. Yeah. I think um, I tend to put too little in <laughs> or take too much out. It's a sort of, you know, it has to correct itself, it has to find its balance. Um, and then um, is it, I do the the classic writer's thing of reading out. Right. So I write, I write on uh, straight onto the computer and then I do the reading out and I think it's not because my work is meant to be read out loud, it's more that it's a distancing process and you get a sense then of what it would be like for somebody, you get more of a sense of what it would be like for somebody to read it cold. Right. without knowing the characters. Right, because at some point you probably know the characters so well that yeah. a slight movement that they make or something it means so much more to you than yeah. to the readers. I also noticed that it's not just with personal dynamics where a lot remains sort of hinted at. It mm. also has to do with the hints of the political situation of that time and place. And in this section, there's a little bit about the lodges making speeches and reading Bible verses... And then Lindsay has the red hand on her shirt. Mm. And later she says, her dad's orange enough for the two of us. And so it's just these little hints. And so it seems that politics is another big unspoken thing mm -hmm. here. And it seems like it's something that's exerting itself as a force in people's lives, whether they like it or not. Do you think that we can't escape history? Mm, I, it is absolutely what I'm writing about. But it's... um. It's, it was a very interesting process for me writing this book because um, it is very much about a, a couple or a family who are trying to make something work, um, you know, in the face of forces that would tear it apart, tear their little unit apart. Mm. And um, I started with a. There's a very brilliant poem by Louis McNeese, a Northern Irish writer, who um, writes about Belfast. It's called Valediction, and it's very much about the push and pull of home, and. There's a lot of resentment in the poem about how much 
he doesn't want to be Irish or he doesn't want to be made by Belfast, but he is. Right. So there's a line which attracted me to it, which is that his heart skips to the sound of a flute band, much against his better judgment. Right. He likes that music. Mm. And um, there, there's another line in it, which is, the woven figure cannot undo his thread. And I took that for my first draft, I took that at face value and I thought, that's it, you know, we can't escape what's made us or what's influenced our families or the reasons why we've moved from Northern Ireland to Glasgow have had massive ramifications for all the generations. And then when I got to the end of the first draft, I thought, actually, this is so bleak. This is so bleak. And I actually don't... Having got to know my Graham and my Lindsay and my Stevie, I don't actually think that they are... And I don't think that humans in general are incapable of change and incapable of thought and of acting beyond their restrictions mm. and um so i am although i do think their lives are very much shaped by the by the troubles mm. or by the 20th century not just the modern day troubles but the 20th century um yeah difficulties between britain and ireland uh they they you know i i, I do sort of think that they can make something and so the second draft is is turning it the story slightly differently. So now the woven figure cannot undo his thread is more like a question than a statement. So it's more can the uh, yeah. woven figure undo its thread? Yeah, I think it's really interesting when you you were talking a little bit about music because it's it's one of those things that's so visceral mm-hmm. and you can't fight the influence of of music on your lives. Yeah, yeah. I mean I think particularly if you lived in a city where there's orange marches and you're not from a Catholic family, mm. then, um, you know, it is very much part of the seasons of the place. You know, speak, I lived in Glasgow for eight years, and yeah. the place where I first lived with my husband, there are a lot of lodges, and and for that reason also a lot of marching bands, and they you would hear them practising come the summer. You'd start hearing, you know, have the windows open and the weather's nicer, right. and you'd hear them practising, and for me it's very much part of summer in Glasgow. Right. And, uh, and I also have... And, and because I lived... I was happy with my life in Glasgow. It's not an unhappy sound for me, even though I know it's very different. You know, I I find the the orange marches intimidating and threatening and all those other things. But the sound of that, the practicing across the summer evening is um is not something unpleasant at all, actually. Right. So I guess some of what you've written here has um has been researched by you personally, just by you living there. Your other books are set, there's one that's set in the Troubles, that's afterwards, and a lot of your work deals with history and sort of political forces. Mm. And do you feel that you have to do a lot of research in order to get that across, or do you, you think that it comes a lot from personal experience? Um, I think well, I think it's two. It's, it's, um, it's the two, and they have to go hand in hand, and you ha- I have to do the research, I have to know what I'm talking about. So, for example, for this book, I got in touch with the Grand Orange Lodge of Scotland and I spoke to lots of Orangemen and I also um, went along to band practices and got to know a couple of bands or people who'd been in bands as well so I went along to band practices people who are currently in bands but people who had also left bands and spoke to them and uh, so I had to know it but then I had to do the whole sort of writing up my research and then distancing myself from it and then it had to be about the characters and not about the issues and 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 then and then when you start talking about the characters or when you start getting into the story element rather than the information element, mm. then it's then it's really very much about empathy and how you can find your way into that person's life and how you can love them. I think I always have to love my characters before I can really write their stories. Right, that's really interesting. Um, Jim Craig did an event with us last week, and he said. Um, 
that he never likes to do any research at all because he needs to leave room for his imagination. Mm. Um, but it seems like with you, it's the characters sort of give you a way to um, to get to that imagination almost. Yeah, yeah. And I, I do, I, I know I, my Israeli translator also translates Jim Crace and we, you know, I'm a big fan and so I've spoken to her mm. about him and she said he came to Jerusalem uh, for quarantine. He was in Jerusalem and he just went to the desert, you know, for one day. <laughs> <laughs> and then yeah. he came, you know, he came in. So he, he does do research, but I think he does it in a very oblique maybe way and also just kind of he gets impressions and then he spins off those impressions i mean he wrote so eloquently about the desert in quarantine right and uh so i think it's it, you know you do need that bit of information first mm. but you do also then need to give room for your imagination very much yeah so this novel seems to be building a lot on the themes of your past work um afterwards and the dark room and your short story collection field study deal with the legacy of war and violence and how ordinary people handle their memories and traumas um, that come from political upheaval. What what draws you to write about this subject matter? Um, I, well, it's, that's very difficult. It's very difficult to know why um, or where the, where the, the core or the, the seed of a book comes from. But um, I, I grew up in Britain as a child of a German family. And I was young in the 70s, and the 70s wasn't so long after the Second World War. And I really felt like my life was shaped by this being um, the enemy in um, in the victorious country. And so I was bullied at school for being a Nazi. They, you know, if they heard me speaking German with my mum when she came up to pick me up from school, then we would get called Nazis and so on. And, it's, you know, this is all very silly, uninformed children's bullying, but it did make me from a very young age, quite aware of how historical events have an impact on your life. Mm. And I see it all, I see it in, in my work now. I work part-time with children with behavioural difficulties. And they are all little individuals in history. I work with primary school children, so it's right. very um, it's very acute in their lives. Mm. But they can't... Um, they haven't got the information about it. They, you know, for them, one boy I'm working with at the moment, his dad is from Sierra Leone, his mum is British. His dad has been deported. He is understandably all over the place about this. He has no idea about what's happened in Sierra Leone. Right. He has no idea why his dad... You know, he has it explained to him, but he hasn't got the context to be able to make sense of it. And I look at his behaviour and how it does... You know, the tearing apart of his family because of historical, political, recent historical and political events and international relations, you know, and, and then I see his behaviour and I think that's, again, you're a little individual in history. Do you think that that's a particularly British story, the idea of how much impact history has had on, on lives, on personal lives, and sort of the, the clash of so many different um, political upheavals ending up in Britain? Maybe. Well, I think but, but that's probably a le legacy of empire because we are still, uh, you know, te teetering on the edge of being an economic force, not for my, very much longer, I think. But, you know, we have been... We punched above our weight um, in terms of size, anyway, economically. And so we've been a destination. And we're a destination for people coming from all the former colonies, of course. 
Mm. And um, and so we do have, particularly the biggest cities or London, where I live, you know, it's you've got people from all over the world. And so you do get you contact with narratives from all over the world. But, I, you know, for me, Ireland as well, I, can, I think, you know, I was born in 1971, so I was born two years into the Troubles. And even it's there on a subliminal level all the way through my childhood, you know, my, in my teenage years when um, the mainland bombing campaign started with the IRA, suddenly all the, you know, the letterboxes were sealed up and you didn't have left luggage anymore. But we just sort of carried on, but it's there on a subliminal level. And people can remember, people in the States can remember where they were when JFK was assassinated. I can remember where I was when the Good Friday Agreement was announced. I was in my Glasgow kitchen and I thought that I was really on the verge of tears and it was amazing. I was cooking the tea and I thought, God, I, I am so amazed and happy that this is happening. Wow. We talked a little bit about the continuity of the themes in your work, but going back to this extract, it seems like you're doing a few new things here. One is you're writing in a Scottish accent, there's dialogue <laughs> in a Scottish accent, which is very impressive. Um, do you feel as if you're responding to new developments in the country or the culture or that you're developing or tra transforming as a writer how do you see anything new happening in your work i think being you know open to all the narratives that have interested me is very important and so i think you know my agent would have been quite keen for me to write about germany again um but there wasn't a germany story and you know that would that was coming and and whereas this story about the Orange Order, bizarrely, was there. But, you know, I, but I lived in Glasgow for eight years. So in a way, you know, it, it wasn't surprising to me. But it, I can see that in terms of, I don't know, my book sales or what have you, it's maybe not the most obvious choice. But um, I, I, what I think I'm doing with this book is, um, it goes back to what, one of your earlier questions about the spare nature of my writing with the writing about the holocaust it was okay really okay to be spare because people have um there is it's like we've all got in the west we've all got this memory bank of images about the holocaust we all feel very familiar with it even though if we're not that informed we feel like we are um just because it's been such a topic and there are documentaries on it all the time on the tv whereas people aren't so informed about the troubles necessarily and certainly not about the loyalist community and so for me the challenge is to have that spare prose and that intimacy that you get from not having everything said but getting into a character's head and getting the nuances of character but also getting information across so I think that was the big challenge giving my readers enough information but making them feel like it was told from the inside from within this community. Another interesting thing about the extract and about your work in general is just how you how you deal with time. I think we talked about it a little bit already, but this extract starts with Graham and it moves forward uh, very quickly to uh, when he's married and has a kid and then takes the point of view of his son. So I was wondering if you always feel like you want to work with some big time canvas. Is that is that something that you're drawn to as well? Um, well, I think that the, being able to leap forward in time gives you a bit more of a sense of a rounded character somehow, or you can see a character progressing. So really the novel that these chapters are taken from is about Stevie, about the son, 
Graham and Lindsay's son, who's conceived in the piece that I read, um, and how he has come into being, or how his character has been formed, and um, and then you know, and he's a he's a nineteen year old um, by the end of the book, and it's. Uh, you know, you have to leap. <laughs> Otherwise, you can't pack all that in. And then it's about finding... It's about finding the key moments, I guess. Yeah, and it seems like it's another way that you're writing around silences because mm -hmm. there's a lot of parts that you don't necessarily have to spell out. And yeah. Another aspect of your work that always fascinates me is just how you can paint landscape and nature. Um, it's often, again, done in just a few words. Like in this section, I think you call Tyrone all wet fields and hedgerows mm. and it's just a perfect image and I actually read somewhere that you used to work in film um, I was wondering if that influenced the way that you write and you think that it's visual or image based in any way um, yes definitely I mean I think two things one is that I'm not afraid of well I am afraid but I do it um, of reorganising so in, an, in an, the ideal edit I used to work in cutting rooms you would be allowed to throw all the rushes up in the air and then see how they land and see if they work better in a different order. You know, often time constraints mean that that doesn't work, but um, I think it's... I've certainly done that with all of my books. See whether this, the scene that I thought was the ending might be better at the beginning. And then the the, uh, the other aspect of that is that in when you're do, editing together a scene, you have to geographically keep your viewer um, located. When you turned the story into us, it was still you were still working on it it was still a uh, work in progress and I think you said that you were um, working on a big rewrite mm -hmm. so I was wondering what it was like to have something published before it's totally finished and if that adds to or changes your editing or rewriting at all um it's been really good I was nervous of it and 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 I hadn't I had never done that before and I thought this is, you know, bad luck. It's bad luck to read things out or to, you know, to have something put out into the open. But it's actually been really good. And it's really, um, you know, having to do readings. And it's really made me, you know, think about what I'm doing with my rewrite. And it's great to get an outside perspective. So it's been, it's actually been really energising. Well, I can't wait to read the rest of the novel and find out what happens to Lindsay and Graham and Stevie. Um, and thanks so much for coming and for joining Granta and all the Britain events. Thank you. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join us next time on the Granta Podcast.